Let's pray. Father, now as we seek to think about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering, the shame that he bore, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes so we could see. Help us, Lord, Father, to look at our hearts and begin to see the depth of sin that is there, but also, Father, help us to see the glory of Christ who died for our sin. And we pray that you would help each one of us this morning to offer praise and thanksgiving to such a Savior as our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, here at the Stanton Evangelical Free Church, we are a Bible church. I know that uh, we don't have that as a part of our name, as some other churches uh, do, but that is still who we are, what we are. The Bible is central to what we do, and it's good for us to be reminded of just what the Bible does. The Bible does two main things for us. First, like a mirror, the Bible reveals to us who we really are, and it shows us what we are like. It points out our flaws that we often don't like to think about. When I was a freshman in high school, I was on the the varsity basketball team, and after the first few weeks of the season, my, my parents and my sisters began to make fun of me a little bit, for they said that whenever I played, my mouth would be open and my tongue would hang out. They thought it was funny, of course, and a little strange, um, and so they you know, talked about it a little too often, I thought, and uh, I didn't really believe them that that was really what was happening, but, but then in my foreign language class, uh, a few days later, my classmates and my teacher also brought it up, talking about it, kind of laughing at me because you know, we had a few home games by then and uh, they'd noticed my mouth being open and my tongue hanging out when I, when I played. So then I kind of had to think about it a little bit longer. Okay, may, maybe, maybe, you know, it's happened once or twice in a game, but come on. They've got to be exaggerating that that's what's going on. But then a week or two later, got the sports page of our local newspaper, and there I was, this big picture of of me trying to shoot over some guy in the lane, and I had my mouth wide open and my tongue hanging out right there for everyone to see who subscribed to our local paper. There it was in black and white, and I could not deny it anymore. Now, we may, may not believe we, we, we look as bad as people say we do or until we actually see ourselves in a picture or we see ourselves in a, a video recording or in a reflection in a mirror. And God's Word does a similar thing when we read about sinners In the Bible, we see ourselves there. We see what what they are doing, and they're doing the same things, or they're thinking the same things that we do and we think, especially when we think no one else will find out. And, And there it is as we look into 
the words of Scripture. And we have made our way through the Passion narrative, as, as Luke here has described for us, the Last Supper, uh, and then Jesus' arrest and trial and now crucifixion, and we are being shown how different people responded to Jesus and, and what was going on uh, in those days. We've, we've seen both the pride and the fear of the disciples as they boasted about which one of them would be considered the greatest in the kingdom, as they bragged about how they would never turn away from the Lord And then we see them deserting or denying Jesus when it mattered. And we've seen religious leaders conspire against an innocent man. They wanted him killed because they felt threatened by him. And we've also witnessed a leader, a governing leader, one who had authority over whether Jesus would live or die, We've seen him willingly turn against what he knew to be right, what he knew to be just, just so that he could acquiesce to the demands of a crowd. And now in the passage that we just read this morning, we see a very ugly scene of three different groups of people spewing forth their hate in mockery of the Son of God. And this is the picture we are shown of humanity here, and it's not very pretty. We may not believe we could be that bad, but like that picture in the newspaper of me, it's, it's right here in black and white. The Bible shows us who we really are. We are creatures who are in desperate need of being saved, of being transformed, of being brought back to God. We're also showing another clear picture here in these verses. The Bible also shows us who Christ really is. The Bible shows us Christ in his glory, although it's not the glory that we would expect to see him in. We get to see for ourselves who Jesus, the Son of God, really is, what his heart is really like towards us and what he accomplished for ugly sinners like us. So the Bible doesn't just show us our great need for a Savior, it also points us to the very Savior that we need. The Bible reveals the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ the Lord, and that is what we see here in our passage this morning. So our main theme from these verses is that Christ showed his love for us, In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a summary that that the the Apostle Paul gives us in uh, Romans chapter 5, and it is a great theme of what we just read in Luke 23. Christ showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our text begins with Jesus on his way to Calvary, that's Uh, the place of the skull, or also known as Golgotha. And uh, we are going to walk with him there. And our attention is going to be fixed on our Savior in this passage. We will once again see how others respond to him and what's going on there. But uh, we also might see ourselves as we see these others responding to the Lord Jesus. But as 
the great pastor Robert Murray McChain was known to say, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. So we're going to take 10 looks at Christ or we look at ourselves this morning. So number one, uh, we see Christ's final warning to Jerusalem. His final warning to Jerusalem in verses 26 through 31. Verse 26 through 31. So Luke doesn't mention it, but part of the process of being crucified was to be scourged or, or whipped across your back 40 times. Uh, and this, of course, would then tear open your skin so that it would make the crucifixion even more torturous for you. This is what Jesus experienced, and one of the reasons why he was so weak uh, and uh, too weak to carry his cross, to carry the cross beam to the place of execution, the place where they would then um, uh, uh, normally uh, affix uh, his hands or his wrists uh, to that uh, cross beam and then lift him up and attach the cross beam to the post that was already in the ground. And so due to weakness or maybe the loss of blood, Jesus was too weak to carry the cross beam. Therefore, the soldiers uh, pressed into service this bystander uh, to carry the cross beam for him. Luke tells us his name was Simon of Cyrene. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us for certain, but New Testament scholars make a pretty good case that Simon probably joined the early church in Jerusalem, possibly coming to faith even at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Uh, for he is known, uh, he's, he, he's, he, he's named here uh, by Luke as if Luke knows who he is, and, and Luke maybe even assumes that some of his readers will know who he is. And in Mark chapter 15, the names of his sons are mentioned as if Mark knew who they were. So again, we, we don't know this for certain, but what we do see here is that Simon was acting out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. One of, one of Luke's main concerns in his gospel is to show us what it means to be a disciple, what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And here we see what it looks like. One who follows close behind Jesus while carrying a cross. That's a disciple of Jesus. When we, we, we are then told about a great multitude of people, and among them were some women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus, following him on his way to Calvary. What Jesus says to the mourning women is a bit unsettling and maybe hard for us to understand. That begins at verse 28. It says, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? The women were, were mourning and weeping about what was happening to Jesus. He was a great teacher. He was a healer. He was an innocent man on his way to being crucified by the Romans. And it was an awful tragedy to them. But Jesus turns and warns them that there is something worse coming for them who live in Jerusalem. And it'll be so terrible that people will say it would be better off not to have children because so many mothers and families will have to endure seeing their children die 
Many of them starved to death or killed. And then others will, will be, would, would much rather be buried alive than have to face the judgment that was going to fall on the city. He's warning about a very awful time that lie ahead. And Jesus had warned of this judgment that was going to happen to Jerusalem six other times before in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus was basically fulfilling a similar role to the prophets of the Old Testament who warned Jerusalem and the Jews of God's judgment coming on them for their idolatry and their failure to remain faithful to the covenant that the Lord had made with them. And that judgment came by way of the Assyrians upon the northern kingdom, upon Israel in 721 B.C., and by way of the Babylonians upon Judah in 597 B.C. And so here we are in the first century, just 40 years after the crucifixion, the Romans would then come and lay siege to Jerusalem, and that is the judgment that Jesus had been warning the people about. Here's what he has said just after he entered Jerusalem back in, in chapter 19, just back a couple pages, 19, verses 41 through 44, on Palm Sunday, after his triumphal entry, it says this, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it and saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So as Jesus warns these women on his way to the cross, this is his final warning. His final warning about what's about to happen to Jerusalem. He is saying it's going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. And verse 31 refers to what, what was about to happen to, to Jesus being crucified, where it says, for if they do these things, then the wood is green, that is, they crucify me, an innocent one, what will happen when it is dry? If the Romans do this to me, a righteous man, an innocent man, well, how much worse will it be for you who are sinners? But we also see Jesus' love and his mercy here. This is not just a word of condemnation. It's a word of warning and a plea for repentance. They have another opportunity to turn to Christ, to recognize their time of visitation, and to receive him for who he really is. He is the Son of God. He is their King. He is their Savior. They still have time. Judgment has not fallen on Jerusalem yet. It will come, but it's not fallen yet. They have time now to repent, but judgment will come much sooner than they think it will. I don't know why it is this way, but over my 16 years of uh, serving as a pastor, um, I, I've, I've done more funerals during the month of October than in any other month of the year. I don't know why that is. But it seems like as the vegetation begins to turn in this area of the country, we also have a lot more of us whose health turns 
and goes the way of all the earth, as King David said. It's not just been funerals for people that everyone expected to pass away, but for those who died also very unexpectedly. So friends, the Lord Jesus here is once again graciously alerting us to that reality. That day is coming. We don't like to think about it, but that day is coming. That day when we will either experience God's judgment when it falls upon his rebellious world, or as we heard from the scripture reading from Hebrews 9, when it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. It will come sooner than you think. So make sure you are prepared. Make sure you are ready. Make sure that you know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and you're following him in faith. The second thing we see that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. This is verses 32 and 33. So now Luke informs us that Jesus was not crucified alone, but he was also with two others who were criminals. Verse 32 says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. For Luke's readers who have been following Jesus throughout his teaching and his healing ministry, this should sound quite strange. Why was Jesus included in this group of people? Why, what, what, what could Jesus have in common with these two criminals? It, it's kind of like you know, the old Sesame Street sketches where the children's program uh, would show you a few different things that were all similar except for one item that obviously didn't belong in the same category. And they'd play the song, you know, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Well, we'll hear one of these men is not like the others. One of these men just doesn't belong with them. These two men were criminals, probably like the ones that Jesus describes in the parable of the Good Samaritan who attacked and robbed the man on his way to Jericho and beat him and then left him for dead. They were probably that kind of men, brutal thugs, muggers. And Jesus right here with them is getting the same punishment, is identified as being like them. Let us not forget who Jesus is and how absurd it is that he would be crucified between two lowly criminals. When the angel Gabriel paid a visit to Mary in Nazareth and let her know she would be the mother of Jesus, he described Jesus to her in this way. He said, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And in the first chapter of Colossians, we are given this glorious description of the man 
who was here in Luke identified with these criminals and was about to die with them on a cross. And as we hear this description of him in Colossians, we would have this question in our minds, why? Why would he come? Why would he lower himself like this? And we're given a clue about that at the end of the passage in Colossians. So Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." So it seems very strange to have the divine incarnate Son of God considered here by those in authority to be no better than these lowly criminals and suffering the same condemnation on the cross as they were. But we are to know, we are to know, this is a part of the divine eternal plan in order to reconcile sinners to God. The prophet Isaiah shows us that clearly with words he wrote at the time of the exile, 600 years before the crucifixion. That's in Isaiah 53, verse 12. He said, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's what Luke is showing us here in this passage. This is all going according to God's plan. This is not a shock to those uh, who knew what Isaiah was pointing to when he prophesied about the Christ. And that isn't the only prophecy that we see being fulfilled here. Next, in verse 34, we see that he makes intercession for the transgressors. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, brothers and sisters, Here is what Luke wants us to remember about Jesus just after his wrists were nailed to the crossbeam. After he was lifted up off the ground and the crossbeam was fastened to the post, once the crossbeam was securely in place, they then nailed his feet to the post, either by by placing one foot over the other and driving a spike through both feet at the same time into the post, or by separating his feet and having one on each side of uh, the post and then driving a spike through each of the feet, just below the ankle and just above the heel. So they both be nailed into the side of the post. And although many illustrations like to, to picture him hanging up fairly high, over everyone else on a cross, more than likely his, his feet were just a couple of feet off the ground so that when people w- would, would walk by, they could do whatever cruel thing they wanted to do to him. He was within reach. And just after he was firmly set in place for his crucifixion, 
raised up. Luke wants us to remember his prayer to God. Luke wants us to know his prayer to God. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So this is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of Jesus being revealed to us. This is the clearest example that we have of someone who loves, loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him, which is what Jesus had taught his disciples to do. Luke has shown this to us before, but Jesus was, was more concerned about others than about himself. We've actually seen that through this whole narrative of the suffering of Christ. We saw this when he was serving his last supper for his disciples, and then telling his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw this when, when Peter was denying him while Jesus was on trial, and then when he was talking with the women here in our passage who were mourning over him on his way to Calvary. And now, even while he's hanging on the cross, Jesus was always thinking of others more so than he was concerned about himself. Luke already showed us how Jesus was literally numbered with the transgressors as he was crucified along with these two criminals right in the middle of them. Again, a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Now Luke shows us that Jesus also clearly fulfilled the second part of that verse in Isaiah. For after it says he was numbered with, with, with the transgressors, it then says, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As Jesus prays for those who were sinning against God by crucifying his innocent son, Jesus prays for them he intercedes for them and asks God to forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, what was the effect of this prayer? Did God just completely forgive all those who conspired against Jesus? Did God answer his prayer and just forgive all of the ones there who were sinning against his son in this way, who were crucifying Jesus Christ? Well, I think we see a partial answer to his prayer in Luke's other book, in, in, in the book of Acts. There in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, another religious festival was taking place in Jerusalem. Many, many people were there as well. And Luke reports that the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and other believers in power and that Peter got up to preach to the crowd to explain what was taking place. He told them it had everything to do with Jesus who had just been crucified 50 days before and then he was raised to life. Listen to what Peter proclaimed to them, to this crowd. It's in Acts 2, verses 23 through 24. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter's pointing his finger, he's pointing his finger at those who crucified Jesus. 
at those who were involved in the conspiracy, at those who gave false testimony against him, at those who, who raised their voice towards Pilate and demanded that Pilate crucify him, and those who laughed at and scorned and mocked Jesus while he died there on the cross. He's pointing his finger at them. And it says again in verse 36, that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. These are the same people that Jesus prayed for on the cross. And Luke then tells us how God answered his prayer. Verse 37 of Acts 2, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And to Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and, those, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. The offer of forgiveness is there. It's there. It's there for you as well. If you would repent of how you have sinned against the Lord by your unbelief, by your rejection of his word, you too can receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. You see his heart. He's ready to forgive. So just come, repent. Believe, follow him. And lastly, we see that he is not the savior that we expect, but the savior that we need. He's not the savior that we expect, but the savior that we need. Verses 34 through 38. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Now one of my favorite preachers is Alistair Begg, and he will often uh, give his congregation homework assignments when he preaches. Uh, he will send them home and have them read a certain passage of Scripture, so that's something that I don't normally do, but I'm going to follow his example today. So this afternoon, or maybe this evening, your assignment is to open up your Bibles and read Psalm 22, okay? Psalm 22, read that psalm. Fathers, you can do this with your children. Uh, read Psalm 22 and see how that psalm basically describes exactly what was happening to Jesus here in our text. Especially what we see in these verses I, I just read. This, this just once again shows us what was happening to Jesus wasn't a surprise to God. You know, Satan was not sabotage, uh, sabotaging God's plan for Jesus here. This was actually the fulfillment of God's plan 
of redemption for his people. God was using the hatred of the religious leaders. He's using the works of the devil to bring about the salvation of his sinful people for all eternity through the death of Jesus. The ironic thing about what all the scoffers are saying about Jesus in order to mock and shame him is that what they are saying is true. He did save others. He saved men, women, and boys from demon possession. He, he healed lepers, paralytics. He healed a woman who had a terrible menstrual bleeding condition for 12 years and a man with a withered hand. And he saved a man from his blindness. He saved Jairus' daughter from death, raising her to life. He raised to life the son of a widow and, of course, his friend Lazarus. By all those incredible works, he showed he was the Christ. He was the king of the Jews. He displayed that he was the son of God. He is the Christ, but he wasn't the Christ that they wanted. He was the Savior, but he wasn't the Savior that they expected him to be. He wasn't the Savior that they wanted. And people still have this problem with Jesus today, don't they? We think we know what a proper Savior should be doing. And when Jesus doesn't do what we think he should do for us, we are disappointed. We think he should want us to be happy. He should want us to be happy. He should give us what makes us happy. But, but when what we demand for our happiness we find is condemned by his word as sin, well, we don't like that. We prefer someone else to be king over us. We prefer some other Lord than him. Following his way doesn't, doesn't bring us the kind of fulfillment we, are, we were hoping for, maybe. Or the spouse that he provided for us isn't quite as perfect as we had hoped he or she would be. He didn't provide the children that we were longing for at the very time when we wanted them to arrive. He doesn't prevent a loved one from getting cancer. And he allows a sick child to die, even though we had many, many people praying earnestly for that child to be healed. We might think, isn't that what a Savior should be doing? But Jesus didn't do it. The scoffers here were challenging Jesus to save himself. If he really was the Savior, save yourself. Come down off of that cross and show, show your power. Show your ability to save. Show your authority. Save yourself if you really are the Christ. But they didn't realize that the only way he could be the Savior was if he stayed on that cross and didn't save himself. If he would have done what they were challenging him to do, we would all still be in our sins. We would all have no hope of being forgiven of our sins or of being rescued from spending eternity in hell 
which would be a well-deserved consequence for our sinful rebellion against a holy God. But Christ stayed on the cross. Christ stayed on that cross. He willingly laid down his life and suffered the torments of hell in our place on that cross. What all of those people at the crucifixion didn't realize was that they had a front row seat to the glory of Jesus saving us and all who put their trust in him. Now back to Robert Murray McChain's words. He, he wrote these words in a letter to a friend who was preparing for the ministry, and, and I think it's a good word for us as well to end on this morning. He said this, learn much, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite mercy and majesty Yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even for myself, the chief. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. And realize when you see Christ here on the cross, that's what you're seeing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus and that he stayed on the cross, willingly laying down his life for us. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ, all that he is and all that is in, is, that is in him for us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.